1972, nothing ever happens in Canada. But we know this is simply not true. I'm Canadian Girl. Thanks for joining me today. This is a Canadian podcast about the myths, legends, and just good old tales Canada has to tell. How's everybody doing with this polar vortex all around? If you're not in the middle of it right now, please send some warm vibes our way. I do hope you're all safe and warm, because I have some stories to tell you about the giants of Canada. That's right, giants are in these parts. Grab your favorite beverage, snack, pull up your blanket nice and tight, adjust your speakers or your headphones, and let me tell you some of Canada's giant tales. We arrive at a time when mammoths and saber-toothed tigers are roaming around. The era is known as the megafauna. It is when giants start appearing in legends across the land. The indigenous tribes would tell stories of great warriors and others who had great gifts of power, strength, and size. There was a giant known as Chichu, I hope I'm saying his name right, in the northern regions who chased a man and made huge footsteps that created six big lakes between Norman Wells and Fort Good Hope Northwest Territories. That's 36 kilometers in six steps. Known as the Weedigo, or most commonly the Windigo, this beast can be found in many different legends across the land, also in many different forms. If you have ever heard of the Windigo in any way before, you know it can be anything but human form. But for this case, we're going to focus only on its more giant human side of the tales. There is a fang giant, known to be a cannibal, who often strikes in the night. With red glowing eyes, some say its skin is completely black from frostbite. It only comes out in the bitter cold of winter, during a really bad storm or after. It can walk across snow and open water without sinking. It has bad breath, pointed teeth, and body odor. But don't worry, it does have a very good sense of smell, great eyesight, and hearing. And if all that wasn't terrifying enough on a cold winter's night, legend claims she is a woman, and she will put her face against your window in order to stalk you right before she gobbles you up. And if that wasn't terrifying enough, the more people she eats, the larger she grows. Do stay inside during this polar vortex, and maybe you just might want to close your blinds too. Double rows of teeth, six fingers and toes, such characteristics relating to our giant friends can be traced back as far as 6,000 years in the Canadian Great Lakes and St. Lawrence River Valley areas. Reports can be found around 2000 BC in the St. Lawrence River Valley area along with the Great Lakes that huge and rugged people were known to inhibit the land along the banks. Massive skulls and bones over the years contribute to this belief. It is possible that a colony of giants once lived in the area. The Canadian Museum of Civilization even recognizes that there is what they refer to as a Middle Great Lakes 
St. Lawrence area culture that was once very large in stature. Disclaimer here, I am in no way a religious expert or has any of this ever happened in Canada. I only use it here as a reference to the history of giants and their presence in ancient stories. Enoch 7-4 Who consumed all acquisitions of men when men could no longer sustain them? The giants turned against them and devoured mankind. Do you know the story of David and Goliath? If you don't, it's okay because we'll come back to it later. For now, all you need to know is that some believe that Goliath was a Nephilim, and according to the Bible, this was a race of giants who was referenced as the sons of God. Reference to the giants can be found in more detail in the story of Enoch, Genesis 6-4, and Numbers 13-33. The Bible also claims that the Nephilim were wiped out in a great flood, so let's sail out of here and see what we can find next. We arrive at a toasty warm fire where a crowd has gathered to listen to a great story of Canadian folklore known as the boy who overcame the giants. We're just in time, so grab a seat. It's about to start. Once long ago, there was a young orphan boy who was sent to live with his uncle. His uncle treated him very poorly and often wished he had not taken the boy in when his parents had passed away. The boy's uncle had heard word of a terrible chief that lived a few villages away that would put people to death for no reason at all. The boy's uncle immediately began to come up with a plan to have the boy killed by the chief so he would no longer have to deal with him. Nice uncle, eh? It just so happens that three giants would come walking into the chief's village and cause havoc and chaos all over his lands. The giants were living in a large cave near the sea and would eat up great supplies of food and small children whenever they could. Night after night, the chief would send his best warriors to the cave to defeat the giants and every morning they would not return. Word had reached the boy's uncle of the chief's problems. He had took his nephew to the chief and said, I have a boy that before many days have passed will rid you of your giants. The chief would reply, If this is true, you shall have my daughter, and if you fail, you will die. The boy went and cried by the ocean, as he was very small and had no way of defeating three giants on his own. As the boy sat sobbing, a woman came out of the mist and asked why he was sobbing. He told her just what had happened. She replied she was the good fairy of the sea, and she would help him. She gave him a medium-sized leather bag, three small white stones, and a knife. She showed the orphan boy how to use these gifts and disappeared back into the mist. The boy would then fall asleep for a while in order to build strength, for he would be in a match against three giants very soon. The boy would fall asleep for a while in order to build strength before he would have to face the three giants. He was awoken a while later by the moonlight shining so brightly on his face he peered down the shoreline where he noticed a deep cut out of the rock cliff. He had found the entrance to the giant's cave. Once he approached the opening, 
he could hear the giants all snoring. He reached in his bag and pulled out the first stone. It began to grow so rapidly he could barely hold it. It became so heavy so quickly he tossed it before he could no longer. The boulder smashed the biggest giant in the head, causing him to wake up kicking and thrashing and scolding his brother for waking him up like that. Then he fell back asleep. The boy again reached in his bag and pulled out the next white stone. It began to grow so fast he threw it. This time the biggest giant would sit up, grab his axe, and kill his brother with one blow. Then the two remaining giants would go back to sleep. The boy would grab his final stone and place it in his hand. It started to grow so fast just like the ones before and he tossed it again. The larger giant was so mad he immediately grabbed his axe and killed his remaining brother, finally hoping to get a good night's sleep. Which he did until he was hungry and now he had no one to cook for him or hunt with him. He was feeling pretty bad for himself and so was the boy. He was down by the water crying, feeling about the same. He still had to face the final giant and he was scared. The giant, feeling lost and confused, went down towards the water and found the boy crying. The giant brought the boy back to the cave and made the boy cook for him. The boy began to cook a marvelous smelling stew. He told the giant that they must eat every last drop and not to waste any. The boy convinced the giant to eat and eat and eat and eat until he was so full he felt he would explode. The boy had fooled the giant that he was eating so much too by pouring his share into the leather bag hiding under his coat. The giant wanted so badly for some relief he begged the boy for a solution. The boy grabbed his knife, stabbing himself in the leather bag under his coat, allowing all the stew to come leaking out all over the floor and the boy sighed with such relief on how much better he felt. The giant was stunned and asked why the boy did not die. Somehow the boy convinced the giant to do the same and within seconds he fell to his death. The boy gathered his bag, three white stones and his knife and headed back towards the village to tell the chief of his victory. The chief would send a messenger out to the cave to check. The messenger confirmed the boy's claims. The boy was rewarded the chief's daughter, which he said he did not want. He said he wanted traps to catch fish and game. He was rewarded exactly that, and he lived happily the rest of his life by himself in the far country, never seeing his uncle again. And the giants? They never entered the land again, due to the boy's great deeds. In 1825, Angus Moore McGaskill is born to average-sized parents in Scotland. He is the fourth of ten children. As a young boy, his family relocates to a very small fishing town on Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia, known as English Town. In 1831, in his adolescent years, he begins to grow rapidly. At age 14, he fought a grown man in self-defense. He hit the guy so hard with one punch in the jaw the man was out for so long, young Angus was worried he had killed his first man. Luckily, he did not. At age 20, he was 7 feet 4 inches. His hands were 11 inches and his feet were almost 18 inches. 
His nickname was Big Boy, but most often he was known as the Cape Breton Giant. He was also known for his amazing strength. They said he could lift a ship's anchor up to his chest that weighed roughly 2,800 pounds. He would walk around with 350-pound barbells tucked under each arm. He had no growth abnormalities for his immense size, and his strength was due to natural genetics alone. He was completely proportionate, which also shows that there was no abnormalities in his growth patterns. He would join P.T. Barnum's circus, touring the West Indies and Cuba. He met Queen Victoria and claimed to be the tallest and strongest man ever to enter the palace. He often hung out with a man known as General Tom Thumb, who was only three feet tall. The two were quite the pair to be seen together, considering their mass difference in size. One time while performing his famous anchor lift, he hurt his shoulder, which was damaging to his strong man act in the circus. He would pack up his bags and return home to Nova Scotia, where he began to purchase real estate properties in the area, a mill, a general store, and some homes. Cape Breton's gentle giant would later pass away of brain fever. Today, this would be meningitis or scarlet fever. The Halifax Arcadian Recorder would report on August 15, 1863. The well-known giant was by far the tallest, perhaps, in British North America. His mild and gentle manner endeared him to all who had the pleasure of his acquaintance. In 1981, the Guinness Book of World Records would recognize him as the tallest non-pathological giant in record history. At 7 feet 9 inches, 425 pounds, and to have the largest measuring chest of a non-obese man at 80 inches. Angus Mormagaskell's grave can be seen on Cape Breton Island and is marked the giant's grave. Just as Angus McGaskill was reaching seven feet tall in Nova Scotia, Anna Swan is born in Millbrook, Nova Scotia in 1846. By age five, she was four feet and eight inches tall and over a hundred pounds. At age 22, she was seven feet tall, six inches and over 350 pounds. In 1862, right before Angus Moore McGaskill would pass away, P.T. Barnum would offer Miss Swan the opportunity she could not refuse. A job paying $1,000 a month with a private tutor for her studies Today, this is about $25,000 a month. Of course, she agreed to the deal. She was put on display at the American Museum in New York as she was the only female giant in the world. She attracted huge crowds daily, and in 1865, a fire would break out at the museum, blocking the stairwells with flames and leaving Anna trapped inside. She was too large to fit through any of the windows and began to panic. She would be rescued by the museum staff who broke apart a wall on the third floor and used a block and tackle with 18 men pulling to lift Anna to safety. In 1871, she would marry another giant named Martin Van Bruten Bates from Kentucky, which she met while crossing the Atlantic Ocean to complete a European tour. He would build them a grand house in Ohio with ceilings as high as 14 feet and furniture to match. 
The couple tried to have children, a boy and a girl, who were both born rather large. Sadly, neither child made it out of infancy. She would later pass away in 1888 of tuberculosis. Miss Anna Swan, the first claimed to be female giant in the world, from right here on a little island in Canada. Who knew? And what was in the water over in Nova Scotia back then? To have two giants roaming around almost back to back. Well, we'd better grab one of these newspapers and see what all the fuss is about. The Toronto Telegraph in August 1871 would report a headline that reads, Skeletons of Giants, Lost City Discovered, along the shores of the Grand River, located in the township of Cayuga, Ontario. Daniel Frendenberg was digging with Reverend Nathaniel Wardell and Messer Oren Wardell on his farm when they got to about six feet below the surface and found perfectly stacked rows on rows on rows of giant skeletons. That's right, about 200 of them, all laid to rest roughly about the same time along the banks of the Grand River. Again, this is in the Great Lakes area that was mentioned before. Not that Cayuga is on one of the Great Lakes, but 20 kilometers to the north is Lake Erie. And I'd say for a giant, 20 kilometers is not that far to travel. But who were they? An ancient tribe of giants living along the lakes and the riverbanks of Canada? Was this an ancient burial ground? Some believe it was. Most of the remains found were 9 feet tall and just a few of them were under 7 feet. Each was wearing a string beaded necklace that they found with axes that resembled more of a tomahawk. And I'm going to let you guys decide here. The newspaper reports that I found in multiple sources say that they were also found with skimmers made of stone. I believe this may be a typo or an error and I think it should possibly be Skinner's. Let me know what you guys think, cause I am puzzled. There were also several men found with stone pipes in their jaws that had pictures of dogs' faces carved on them. These guys like smoking and their dogs. They sound like they were a pretty cool tribe to me. Some reports state, though teeth were nearly perfect, there was two rows. Some also claim to have seen skeletons with six fingers and toes. They were believed to be of the Neanderthal type or the Nephilim. Their thigh bones were said to be six inches or more longer than what is known today. On average, we have femurs roughly around a foot to a foot and a half depending on one's stature. These remains were claimed to have femurs some well over two feet. One of the skulls was so large it could be placed over one's head entirely. Evidence shows that a battle took place due to some of the injuries noted on the remains. It also explains the mass burying of so many people all around the same time. Many also believe a lost city was discovered on that farm in small town Ontario, as through the years many artifacts would be uncovered. Outlines of what were once mud houses, old chimneys, the remains of a blacksmith's shop with two tons of charcoal still inside, and almost petrified shells assumed for holding water. Just three years earlier, about 10 kilometers away, mastodon bones were found. Then. 
West Coast Times on November 29, 1871 would state, The pit and its ghostly occupants are now open to view. Visitors and curious people came to the farm daily. It's 1872 and we're near Comox, BC, 220 kilometers northwest of Victoria, where we approach three huge mounds of earth, anywhere between 15 and 150 feet in diameter. The mounds were made of sea sand, black mold, and a mix of shells all in between. Upon being excavated, they found a very large skull and a elongated skull, and the third mound contained child's teeth. They were all suspected to be the remains of a Nephilim tribe. The Daily British Colonist in 1885 would report on Wednesday, August 5th in Happy Valley, BC, around the Coalwood in Victoria area of the island. The headline would read, Mammoth Petrified Man. A body of a petrified giant found on the Gilbert farm was said to be an organic fossil, as many hoaxes had come about as people tried to set up scams for money. Two farmers were trying to sink a well many miles outside of town when they discovered the remains. It looked to be scalped, its arms and legs had been cut off short to allow for easier burial. The man was estimated to be about 10 feet tall and easily weighing about a thousand pounds. His head was 36 inches around. Ours today on average is 22 to 23 inches. This story was such a huge find, it was even reported in the New York Times on August 17th, just 12 days later. Next, we arrive in a small town almost 4,300 kilometers away in Ontario, known as Simcoe, and not Simcoe County or anywhere by Lake Simcoe, where most people assume it is when you say this little town's name. It is located in Norfolk County, just off of Lake Erie, where those giants are known to roam. The Milwaukee Sentinel would report on October 21st, 1934, the headline would read, Giant Skeletons Are Discovered. On October 20th, in Simcoe, Ontario, many eight feet tall and higher ancient indigenous skeletons were found along the shores of Lake Erie. This led many to believe there had once been a massive tribe that lived in this area. I found a small newspaper clipping on Pinterest of all places, so I could not validate its source properly, but found it interesting that it had to do with the shores of Lake Erie in Port Dover, Ontario. The headline would read, Huge Skeleton Found in the East. The article states that builders were excavating when they came across the skeleton of a powerful man from long ago. Most of the skeleton turned to dust upon being exposed, but what was saved was the man's skull and a very large jawbone with teeth intact. He was believed to be 8 feet in height, if not more, and based on his position when he was found, they said he was in a huddling position, which led them to believe he was a type of warrior. I personally grew up along the Great Lakes as a child, and I am the farthest thing from a giant at five one and a half inches standing on a nice fluffy floor mat. But to think my tiny foot may have once walked along or even stepped where a mighty giant once roamed, that's a pretty neat feeling indeed, and I'll take it. Remember the story I mentioned earlier about David and Goliath? Well, we're at that park. 
I'm not going to go on a big deep dive into the story because there's lots of other podcasts and scholarly papers who do a much better job than I can for that. I'm just going to tell you what we need to know for our story. Goliath is described as a giant and believed by some to be a Nephilim, is defeated by a young boy named David. It's the classic underdog story that everybody loves. Well, today we're going to meet our very own Goliath right here in Canada. Meet Jerry Sokolowski. I hope I said that right. 36 of Toronto, Ontario. He is the tallest man in Canada at 7 feet 8 inches according to Hollywood. But in reality, with his size 25 running shoes on, Jerry says in an interview, he's 7 feet 7 inches. For comparison, LeBron James is 6 feet 8 inches. Shaquille O'Neal is 7 feet 1 inch. With his 12 inch hands, he does however hold the title for the second biggest hands in the world. On average, ours are about 7 inches. He was just recently beat out by a guy in Turkey. And remember how I said he's our very own Goliath? It's true. He played the giant in the 2015 blockbuster hit, David and Goliath. Today we just have large reminders of our giant ancestors. In 2008, a kayaker along a remote region of Canada known as the Pacific Rim National Parks Reserve Broken Islands in BC would spot a very large carving in a cliff but was unable to remember its exact location. The carving is of a giant face. It's 7 feet tall on the side of a cliff, 40 feet from the bottom and 25 feet from the top. So who carved it and how did they get there? When the kayaker couldn't remember the exact location, Parks Canada would work with the local indigenous people to relocate the giant's face. Hank Gus of the local First Nations spent almost two years trying to locate it when in 2015 he found it on Reeks Island. Gus believes it looks like a carving on the door of the First Nations Administration Office of Yugi, I hope I'm saying that right, the symbol of the wind. Then we have the famous sleeping giant of Thunder Bay, who to be honest, I'd like to do a whole episode on one day, as he has a very interesting story to tell for sure. So we're not going to get too deep into it today. If you don't know, the sleeping giant of Thunder Bay, Ontario is a rock island out in the bay. It looks just like a giant resting in the water. A park recognized by Parks Canada the giant itself is covered in 1,000 kilometers of trails for all to explore. Resting in Lake Superior, the legend says a chief was warned not to tell of the great silver mines hiding on another island by the spirit of Nana Bijou of the deep sea water. But the chief did not listen, and Nana Bijou turned him into stone, just as she had promised. A terrible storm would break out, and once it cleared, the sleeping giant figure of a man could be seen in the bay by all. Well, those were some giant tales about Canada indeed. I had no idea there were so many big footprints left all around Canada. 
What else I found interesting was how many were found where I grew up as a child around the Great Lakes. But I suppose they'd need a lot of fresh water to remain a giant race of people, so it makes sense to live so close. Well, Canada, like I said at the beginning, it's very, very, very cold out there. Do stay safe, warm, watch out for the Wendigo, you know what she's like. She likes to come out in freezing cold, right after a good storm, peering in your window, right before she... You know. I'm Canadian Girl. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay warm. couple podcast recommendations for you guys. My first is for all you history lovers looking for a new fascinating time in history you may not have heard about before. Join host Frank on a compelling deep dive into the Ottoman Empire over at Empires of History podcast. He'll explain it all right from the beginning. A couple of my favorites are episode 4, Pirates and Goodbye, Oran. When the Sultan's son is kidnapped by the pirates and wait for the part when you meet Timur and his pyramids in episode 11, his latest episode out now. That's the tale I'll never forget. My second recommendation goes out to The Woods Podcast. They look at tales of mystery, legend, and anything else curious or creepy you may bump into while wandering in the woods. These two ladies are from Saskatchewan, so I'm a little biased when it comes to Canadians. But seriously, go check out their episode, Build Your Own Lake Monster. It's one of my favorites. And it wins for best title of an episode in the Lake Monster Myth category. Also, their episode, I'm With You, will make you never want to cross a bridge alone ever again. You can find both these amazing shows on all your podcast apps. And if you can't, of course I will include links below. Again, that was Empires of History Podcast and The Woods Podcast. Please go check them out, guys. If you love this show and you think it's pretty rad, you can now help us out by supporting us by clicking the first link in the show notes below. Any small donation helps and allows us to buy another book, do a little more research, and make this show that much better for you guys. If you can't support financially, you can help us out tremendously by leaving a comment or review in your podcast app. It allows us to move around on the charts and lists so we can be found by more awesome listeners like you guys. As always, you can reach me on Twitter and Instagram. And if I remember to check Facebook at the handle at Nothing Canada. If you'd like to email me, you can reach me CanadianGirl2319 at gmail.com. Please send me your comments or suggestions for new show topics. I'd love to hear from you. You guys who made it to the very, very end, you must be freezing and not want to go outside. I'm just teasing. I'm so grateful for you guys. Keep your mitts on, coffee stocked up, and soup bubbling. It's chilly out there. I'm Canadian Girl.
Want to help support the show? You can do that in three simple ways. The first one, you can leave us a shiny five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This small gesture means so much to this podcast as it allows us to move around on the podcast charts and meet more awesome listeners like you. The second, you can stop by our souvenir shop and pick up a souvenir from one of our great adventures and take it on your very own. There's t-shirts, water bottles, notebooks, and so much more. Do head over to our souvenir shop today and grab some adventure gear. And finally, the third way you can help support the show is by donation. We have a fancy PayPal button that can be found on the top right of our webpage, nothingcanada.com. This button allows you the option to donate as much as you want, whenever you want. All donations will be used for the channel by buying new books for research, paying for the podcast website, and upgrading equipment. All three links to help support the show, of course, can be found in the show notes below. I thank you all so much for your support of the show. It means the world to me.